Now then, at 15 minutes past eight, after winning their fourth World Cup, the US women's national soccer teams convinced many fans that they deserve to be paid as much as their male counterparts. Chants of equal pay could be heard not only at this summer's World Cup in France, but also during the US team's victory parade in New York City last week. For further discussion, let's welcome on the line Jessica Luther, freelance investigative journalist, co-host of the feminist sports podcast, Burn It All Down. Thank you for joining us. Yeah, thanks for having me. And it was a pretty startling speech, wasn't it, from a, a woman who has gained considerable celebrity, even before the World Cup, but especially during and after. Megan Rapinoe, uh, the uh, co-captain of the U.S. national team, uh, she spoke during the victory parade in New York City. What sort of impression did that leave on you? I thought it was an amazing speech. I think it was really... You know, it was in line with a lot of the things that she's been saying now for years. She was one of the first, I think she was the first white athlete in the U.S. to kneel alongside Colin Kaepernick when he was um, advocating for racial justice in this country. And, you know, she has been um, outspoken about LGBTQ rights in this country. And I just felt like it just made sense. It was really, um, it was just really on um it's on topic for her, and it was really well said. I thought she did a great job. The team has been at the centre of this global spotlight throughout the World Cup, sometimes for reasons like being too successful, the way they, they <laughs> completely crushed the, the Thai team, for example, uh, but also sometimes uh, more political reasons, Megan Rapinoe's refusal to sing the national anthem, uh, Alex Morgan's tea-sipping goal celebration, the question of whether they would welcome uh, an invitation by President Trump to the White House upon victory. Can you give us a roundup of the, the World Cup from your perspective? Yeah, it was so amazingly political in a way that a lot of these major uh, sporting events often are not. And the U.S. team is, you know, the best example of that and for all the reasons that you just listed. Uh, but also we saw, you know, messages from the Brazilian players, Marta, their superstar, uh, probably playing in her last World Cup after they lost. You know, she made an impassioned speech to the girls of Brazil to keep fighting. Uh, one of the players made a point of, you know, telling the Brazilian Federation they needed to put more money into the team. We saw the Jamaican women's team really fighting against their federation for more money. There was a sit-in uh, that the Nigerian players did after the World Cup in order to get paid for the work that they did. Uh, it was just, there was a lot of politics involved in a way that is really personal to the players who were participating in it. And the U.S. team was just sort of the most famous example of all of that. And as we reflect, and we'll go closer into it, on the equal pay demand, it's probably worth noting that this set viewing records, this particular tournament, could we Mm -hmm. um, sense that it reached a turning point, women's football, in terms of global awareness, and actually drawing male attention as well as female attention? Yeah, there were huge numbers around the world. Um, You know, new records set in the U.S., but that tends to happen every four years. But uh, Brazil, which has had historically low numbers before, like had millions of people tuning in. I think at some point when I think France, the average viewership was like 10 million people in a country of 60 million, 66 million were watching every single game, which is a huge percentage. We saw big numbers um, all around Europe. Uh, you know, a lot of those teams have made it into the deeper into the tournament. But yeah, it really does feel... I mean, there are millions and millions of people in this world who love women's soccer, and that was really clear this year just from the viewership numbers alone. 
So, on to this equal pay demand. 28 members, all of them, of the current uh, U.S. Women's National Team roster filed a class action lawsuit against the U.S. Soccer Federation on March 8th, International Women's Day, uh, and obviously months before the tournament. Uh, They were asking for pay that's equal to the men's team which obviously has the same responsibilities. It's it's not even like the tennis debate that we see with the Grand Slams where women still play a best of three rather than the best of five set format. Now, I mean, that's a whole other debate. Uh, but uh, on, the, on, on the football side, they play the same number of minutes. They, I mean, everything about it is the same. Can you explain to us the pay gap between the men's team and the women's team? Uh, yeah, I mean, there's, you know, pay gaps in all kinds of, places along gendered lines so it's just sort of part and parcel of the sort of sexist breakdown of how money works in our culture as far as with soccer uh you know it's important to note that they are suing for equal pay and that's sort of become the chant and they do have a different uh, contract with the u.s soccer federation than the men do um but they do get paid significantly less they actually work a little bit more i want to argue they actually play more games because they're more successful so once they um, have a successful run like they did with the World Cup, they're going to go play a five-game tour around the U.S., something the men who just actually lost in the final of a regional competition, the Gold Cup, uh, they are not going to be going on those um, victory tours. So the women actually end up working a little bit more. Um, but, you know, it's beyond that. What, what the women are really looking for, equal pay sort of the last thing, they want equal investment. And I think that's really important. They want equal investment in, in the youth teams and the marketing and the way that the teams are treated um, when they're actually playing. Are they, you know, traveling the same? All these things, there's often disparities between the men and women's team. Um, And a lot of the time, there's not a better reason than just the women's team is treated worse in the way that women tend to be. So so what do you make of FIFA President Gianni Infantino's proposal to expand the Women's World Cup and, and to double prize money? Um, you know, FIFA is often taking very small steps. Um, I've been very publicly <laughs> critical of FIFA. I think that they have a long way to go. They often um, do very incremental things for the women's game. So they're going to expand uh, the World Cup going into 2023, which, you know, a point is we don't even know where that's going to be. FIFA hasn't even announced where the next one is for the women. Um, but they're not doing anything to mandate that Federation make sure that they're putting money into these women's programs. So, you know, I do worry that once we expand to 32 teams, we'll just see, you know, the sort of 13-0 and U.S. Thailand game. We might see more of that because they're not doing the sort of the important work, um, you know, mandating that the federations actually do work with the women's teams in their countries. And as far as the prize money goes, that's good. Uh, I don't know. It's it's hard for me. FIFA is worth billions and billions of dollars. They make, like, you know, across a few years, they make $6 billion. They've got $2.7 billion in reserve. <clears throat> and then they still have this, you know, you know, couple hundred million dollar gap in prize money between the men and women's teams. And they tend to raise the women's amount, but they also raise the men's. So, um, you know, it looks good on paper, what it will mean for actual women's soccer. I mean, we'll see. I'm putting me in the skeptical column when it comes to FIFA. Let's just talk a little bit more about football pay. It's perhaps slightly different to um, some of the other sports where there isn't this uh, astronomical level of money that's involved, uh, especially on the on the men's side. Uh, we never really hear the debate about what 
players earn at international level. It's all about are they earning too much at, at club level? I, I mentioned briefly before the interview the likes of Manchester United, Barcelona, Real Madrid, but the, there are dozens and dozens and dozens of elite men's uh, football or soccer clubs around the world who will pay crazy amounts of money to, to players who you know sometimes are fairly average. What about the the women's club game? Isn't that where we should be focusing our attention in this in this debate? And is there a way of trying to increase that, or is it just completely driven by consumer demand, ticketing, and the freedom of the clubs to pay what they want to pay? Yeah, that's such a good question. I always I do feel like the club level is um, it is different than the federation level because you're not talking about national teams, right? Where um, you are talking about teams that are often driven by money and um, how much stuff people, how much money pe- uh, players can bring into the game. You know, I it's interesting. So Olympic Lyon, Olympic Lyonnais uh, is this uh, very just the best probably team in the world and the women's team, the Olympic Lyonnais team in in Lyon, France. Mm-hmm. Um, and that owner just decided years ago that he thought women's soccer was worth it, and he started to put money in. He brought these women in. They have a camp, you know, they have a training facility there, and he started marketing it. And Lyon loves women's soccer. Um, and so one thing that I always feel frustrated with the club level, um, people say that no one wants to watch it, but then they also never market it. <laughs> so they're sort of hoping that people find it in the dark. Uh, and we know that's just not how these things work. Um, so there are definitely examples of where it can work. It's whether or not uh, people in charge of these clubs and um, you know, soccer in general really want to put the work in to to get people interested in women's soccer. Yeah, I, I mean, I, I think this tournament was so important just as someone who's a big football fan myself this was so important that many of the media organizations were on board uh, the bbc for example mm-hmm. um gave a uh, very prominent coverage so every male football fan who's going to check out news about their favorite team is also being exposed to what's happening with england's national team the fact that they also did quite well in the tournament uh, was even better because <laughs> uh, obviously success right, helps right. breed popularity uh, but I just want to ask you, I mean, because I know that you, you're you involved with this podcast talking about the feminist perspective of sports generally, not just football. Um, what about this right. argument of, of men in certain sports? Obviously, it's not relevant in every sport, but in many sports, uh, you know, it's athleticism that's prized. It's speed, it's power, and, and, and men are they're just biologically at an advantage, not in every case, but at the very elite level, they have this advantage. Is, is that a problem that that is impossible to square from a feminist perspective? What's your view? Huh, that's a good question. I, it's not a problem for me. I mean, I do. I think soccer is such a a fascinating sport in particular because even when the men play, there's such a difference in body shape across the pitch. A lot of the time, uh, you can have very short men, and you can have, of course, in the goal, you'll have very tall people. Um, the idea that like there's one particular body type, unlike say basketball, right? Mm. Um, and so the idea that, like, women can't produce a sort of same athleticism, I mean, we saw amazing goalkeeping, which would probably maybe be the one um, position where you could kind of argue that uh, men might have an advantage or something. Uh, I feel like soccer is one of those where it really breaks down this idea that, like, athleticism, that the men have some advantage here with this. Uh, 
Uh, man, I don't know. I, I think a lot of the time people say that because they feel like that's an easy fallback. You hear it a lot with basketball for women, too. Um, and maybe they just play a certain different kind of style. Yeah, um, I guess... St- like men and women's tennis, right? But, like, you still get something out of it. Like, watching Serena Williams play is wonderful in a different way than watching Roger Federer play. Absolutely. I actually think tennis is a great example because, you know, look at Serena Williams, her profile. Um, she's shown uh, without doubt that, that the women's game can be extremely popular. Um, but, you know, you break it down to something as simple, say, as a 100-meter sprint and, and the world record holder being a man, it, it's hard to change that. Sure, but, like, I don't, I don't know if that matters. Mm. I mean, the women who run the 100 meters... Um, they still do it faster than almost everybody else on the planet. Yeah, There's yeah. like a small group of elite men who are faster than them, but they're still faster than almost everybody else on the planet, even the men out there who think they could run faster than them. Um, and so you're still getting remarkable athleticism um, out of these women that most people, the vast majority, could never do. Je- Jessica um, Luther, we are out of time. I'm so sorry, but you're making okay. excellent points. And, and I think marketing <laughs> is perhaps the most important of them. It affects our p- potential positions hugely. This morning continues next. <laughs>